Hello, and thanks for joining us. This is Disruptors at Work, an integrated care podcast, where all of the topics will be with subject matter experts, practitioners and providers, leaders and managers who are implementing integrated health projects all over the world. I'm your host, Dr. Kara English. All right, welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptors at Work podcast. Today's episode focuses on the emerging epidemic of chronic cannabis use among teens and young adults. We're talking about an important topic today, especially for those states with uh, changing legislation. So our guest today will walk us through what you need to know about marijuana use among teens, particularly for those who are heavy users. In the United States at this time, um, on this date of recording, which is Friday, April 16th, 2021, 36 states and four territories have approved measures to allow cannabis for medical use. And there are challenges in some of those states and the approved measures are still controversial, including measures to protect citizens from criminal penalties for using marijuana for medical and or recreational purposes. And to date, recreational marijuana legislation is rolling out on a state-by-state -state basis, uh, with, cur with currently 16 states having legalized recreational use. And so as of today, a third of all Americans live in states in which marijuana use is legal in some form. So I'd like to introduce our guest today, Dr. Jody Newdelman, who is a psychologist in Marin County, California, where she has a small private practice and also consults with health technology companies. And Jody, we are well, we are uh, lucky enough at Cummings Graduate Institute to have Jody serving on our advisory board, which has been incredibly helpful to uh, help us inform our curriculum in the Doctor Behavioral Health Program, as well as some of the continuing education areas that we're um, strategically enhancing and, and expanding in 2021. So Jody, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited. I think we, you know, as we said before we started recording, we could probably talk for hours and hours on this topic. It's really important right now. And um, truthfully, you know, in my practice with maternal mental health, moms have a lot of questions about use of cannabis. Um, and oftentimes, you know, the, the terms, well, it's, it's natural, it's from the earth. Um, you know, are used to talk about this, but we also know that the, the cannabis that's available in the dispensaries is really, really enhanced. It is much stronger and it has some really big psychiatric potential that parents need to know about. Um, and, you know, certainly in my practice that pregnant women need to know about. Sure. So, um, so again, thanks for coming with us today. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here as well. Yeah. So um, let's just start by, you know, talking a little bit about what you're seeing in your practice, maybe describe your practice a little bit for the listeners and then and talk about what you've been seeing recently since California has passed some of the legalization uh, legislation. Sure. Um, so I can say that from a professional standpoint um, in higher levels of care where we've seen families bring their, um, their kids into treatment when they need more than therapy once a week or more than counseling services at school where there's 
more concern about substance use and abuse um, as, as tied to mental health issues, depression, anxiety, other behavioral issues, attentional issues. Um, what we're seeing is really a marked increase in kids that come through mental health practices that are exposed to uh, substances, many substances. And I would actually say that the numbers that we're seeing um, from the CDC are actually low in, in some areas, particularly those states that have legalized cannabis. Um, the numbers, I think was just around 30 something, 30, between 30 and 40% of kids have tried it. And I would say in some areas where there's legalization, it's much closer to, you know, potentially 80 or 90% of kids that have, have tried. Yeah. Um, so I think that we can't really um, use the same sort of mentality when approaching this. It's sort of normalized for this age group. Um, and I've heard kids say to me that it's abnormal if you haven't tried it. Um, and they have to really be strong to actually say no for the first time. Um, there's a lot of peer pressure out there as there always have been has been. And um, I feel like a lot of times my practice revolves around helping parents cope with their approach um, to managing the issue with their kids. So um, yeah, parents that's- need, Parents need tons of support, but I don't think, you know, if, if parents are not entering counseling, um, I think they are afraid to talk openly with other parents about mm -hmm. their worries for their own kiddo. Um, and I also think, and, and this seems to be something I'm encountering as well, is there seems to be, you know, even if recreational use is legalized, people are still not, um, they're, they're so used to marijuana use being um, illegal that when they come in to a physician and a physician is asking, you know, what kind of medications are you taking, um, they may not share that they are using medically cannabis right. or recreational cannabis. Right. And somehow there's this idea that, um, you know, parents can openly talk with their kids about dr drinking, right. Yeah. And what, and in some cases condone drinking and condemn marijuana use, right. Um, as, as, as separate. Right. And, and I think that there's a reason why there's a legal age limit, um, for liability and legal reasons, but also, because they're much closer to full brain development when you get into the 20, 21, 22 range. Um, that being said, I think that all of us, whether you're an adult or a child or a teenager, need to be able to openly have conversations about our relationship to substances or frankly, anything that's consumable, um, including media and you know, screen time and, and anything that's consumable food. Um, and to some extent, these are also prime years for adolescents to be exploring themselves, their identity and their sexuality. So in terms of having a healthy relationship with um, not only substances, but, you know, your own sexuality and engagement with other, other teens. Um, and so, you know, I'm biased because I'm a psychologist, but my uh, feeling about the topic is the more parents can get engaged and, and, and have open conversations with their kids, um, the more protective that becomes um, as a factor in preventing long-term chronic problems with, any, with anything. Um, having a securely attached teenager that feels that they can take the risk to approach a parent and say, 
um, well, this is what's really happening without fear that their parent is going to condemn or punish them, um, which really is a conversation stopper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, and in my practice, I've had a couple of moms with older kiddos, adolescents who wanted to use marijuana medicinally because they said it helped them sleep, mm-hmm. but they're also not 18 years of age, certainly not 21 years of age. And so there are some concerns. And I know parents are often feeling like they don't have the data to make a good argument or to set limits with their kiddos. And so oftentimes it's either the black and white, you know, don't use it at all response that parents give, which right. may be appropriate. Um, and I would say it is appropriate just, you know, based on what we know about neurological development, you know, mm-hmm. in kiddos. And at the same time, we know that there is good evidence that the use of cannabis can be helpful for things like insomnia and also for, you know, kiddos with autism and sleep disorders. Mm. So what, what experience or what have you seen, what observations have you seen, um, in, in talking with parents of kiddos with those kinds of, you know, sleep disorders or, or autism. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What do you recommend? Well, okay. So there's a fine line between, you know, when we talk about addiction or dependence, there's a fine line between chemical and biological addiction and behavioral habit forming, uh, problem, uh, lifestyle. So, um, if you ask people that are habitually dependent on marijuana, um, they'll tell you the hardest part about it is, is the, is the behavior that whether it's the social element where everyone in the, everyone in a room is using. So it's like hard, it's not hard not to participate in, in that behavior, um, versus the effect of the actual drug. So I think it's important to tease out whether or not anyone of, whether it's an adult or a teenager is dependent on the substance or dependent on, on the, on the habitual behavior. Um, sorry, my ringer was off. Um, so to, to answer the question about, about treatment, I think it's all emerging, right? The research is still all emerging and whether you can apply that research to adults or, or, or teenagers, it's, it's really an emerging science. And I think everybody has individual differences, right? So for example, if somebody says, oh, I really want to try cannabis for sleep or CBD for sleep or THC for sleep or um, to regulate their behavior in some way, my go-to response would be, well, what have you tried so far, right? What have you tried? What is the standard practice? And have you really invested the time in sleep hygiene? Um, have you you know, committed to turning off your screens an hour before bed? Have you this, you know, uh, you know, stopped eating a couple of hours before bed. Do you engage in um, relaxing activities before bed? And do you have a set bedtime? Um, is there is there an environment where where sleep is is conducive at a particular hour? Is your family supportive of that, or is there you know activity happening in the house before bed? So the those environmental factors and family functional dynamic factors are stronger impact has a stronger impact on whether or not a kid is able to fall asleep than whether or not they're taking the CBD or the THC. So, and, and, and we have to be able to look at families and talk to families about what their family patterns are. Is it your family pattern 
to take a sleeping pill to go to bed? Right. Is it your parents' family patterns to, you know, uh, you know, have a TV in their room and watch TV until midnight before they go to bed? What sort of modeling has been learned in the family in terms of addressing problems? And, you know, um, I'm not the kind of practitioner that can work with a kid and not recognize the larger family dynamic, most often the multi-generational patterns that exist and that have been conveyed through the generations. So um, with most kids, I, I like to at least get uh, parents to activate around whatever the problem behavior is and recognize their, their role in perpetuating that right. um, and not put it all on the kid. It's really, I always say that adolescence doesn't happen to, to kids, it happens to families. Right. Well, and I think, you know, just the word itself, adolescence, you know, the meaning is becoming an adult. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a full, you know, it, it's a family experience, but I think so many parents struggle due to the fact that they perhaps didn't have great modeling themselves as teens. Um, perhaps they're trying to reverse, you know, some dysfunctional family patterns or some trauma or abuse, you know, that they experienced as a kiddo. And they, at the same time, don't have a lot of great modeling mm -hmm. or reversing those trends. And so they're kind of wading into new waters Yeah, um, and they're testing how that's going. And I know some of the folks who are saying, well, what do I tell my, my teenager are also those who say, you know, I started getting high when I was in middle school. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite but how do I tell my kiddo not to do what I did? Right, right. And, and I, would, I would argue that it's not about telling your kiddo anything. It's about um, asking and being available and uh, interested in what their experiences are, curious about how your child, how your teenager experiences the world, how they experience their friendships, what the uh, layers are in their emotional landscape. For example, how are they doing in school? Are they able to feel successful? Do they feel connected and engaged with their peers? How do they manage distress when they get a bad grade or feel rejected or don't make a team? Or, um, you know, someone looks at them funny or they start comparing their body shape to someone else. All of these factors are the um, ingredients to how a teenager modulates their self-concept and their mood and their emotional awareness. And um, often, like adults, when we experience things that feel uncomfortable, what's the, um, you know, often the, the tendency is to avoid the feeling, you know, to either push it away or distract yourself, turn on the TV or eat a chocolate cake, yeah. you know, or um, say, you know, oh, I don't want to think about this, you know, have sex, right? Do whatever they can to not feel the feeling of distress and, and upset. And, and as parents, what we can do is heighten our own ability and authenticity in, in experiencing our own emotional regulation right. and model that for our kids um, and feel connected to them emotionally. So there's a landscape to be able to explore 
whatever it is that they're feeling, whether it's good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, most That's interesting. Yeah. I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you, yeah. but what I hear you saying is there are so often times where we go to, you know, take a pill, turn on the TV, distract, dissociate from the uncomfortable experience that you're having. Right. And so for us as adults, we are modeling that behavior for our teens who live in the house yeah. and holding them to an unfair standard when we say, don't do what I'm doing, you know? Um, and, you know, certainly from a very young age, I have one 15 year old son, he's an only child and mm-hmm. I can't tell you how often, you know, we'll, we'll say, go to bed and he'll say, well, you guys are just going to stay up late and watch TV. Mm-hmm. So it is that that discrepancy between what we're telling him to do is good for his health and wellness, you know, getting enough sleep, making sure that he has good rest and good hygiene. And here we are watching TV until late in the night. That's right. Teenagers love that. They love to point out that their parents are hypocritical. (laughs) Fair enough. You know, and I think what, what I also heard you saying, which is really important to me as a, as a parent of a, of a, you know, teenager is, it's the connection, it's the deeper level of compassion. And it's, it's, you know, the idea and the focus of the relationship, the, the building the, uh, the trust, building the bond further, mm-hmm. um, instead of, you know, responding to the situation at hand, you know, mm-hmm. taking an opportunity to say, this is, this is something that my teen is asking for more connection, you know, right. and the way yeah. I respond you know, can really make or break this moment. Yeah. I think it's, it's really the hardest job there is on the planet. I mean, I want to acknowledge, you know, parent raising a kid. No, there's no manual for that. There's no class you can take, you know, to pass and get a license in order to have, have a, have a kid and know that there's a right way or, or a wrong way. And, and people tend to go out and seek resources that align with their own values anyway you know, whether, whether you're a cry it out kid or an attachment, you know, you know, co-sleeping parent, you know, one way or the other, you're going to find the resources that, um, that align with what you want to do anyway. Um, but ultimately we find that kids that are securely attached, right. That feel comfortable confronting their parents, knowing that there's going to be an openness to that response rather than, you know, just do it because I said so, or because there's a conditionalism to, you know, if you do that, then I will pull funding and you can't go to your favorite school or, you know, whatever it is, I'm not going to buy you a car, whatever the conditionalism is. I think that that has an impact on um, a kid's willingness to be open and forthright with their parents. I think that, you know, um, I don't know if we're getting enough into the nitty gritty about the, the, the cannabis piece per se, because I think that the jury is still out in a, a lot of ways regarding research. Like you said, a lot of these parents, especially in the states where there's legalized marijuana, um, you, know, you, can, you can go to a dispensary and these kids are getting um, access, more and more access to you know, high quality um, regulated uh, um, product. Um, well, and especially with the, the new edibles, mm-hmm. you know, um, when some of the dispensaries started opening in, in states like Colorado, you know, early, um, legislation passed on recreational use. Um, it, it wasn't just, you know, that the worry that kids, you know, would have greater access. It was also, you know, that they may mistake gummy right. bears 
you know, for a, a parent's secret stash of candy and, and right. you know, consume those in error. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, of course, teens having access to lab quality THC right. um, with their developing brains. Um, so, you know, just, just being able to, you know, again, go back to the idea of how much do you know as a parent about, you know, what, what is on the market in dispensaries and available, you know, and yeah. not to you, but to the families of, of the, the kids that, you know, your kid is socializing with and right. how are you talking about that with them? Right. Or are you talking about with them? Right. Um, you know, there's this kind of underlying belief in some parents, well, if I don't talk about it, you know, I'm not modeling it. I'm going to hide it from my kids if it's in the house. And, and, and I, and I do think that we have to be mindful of what we're modeling behaviorally and what we're buying and bringing in front. I mean, how many families do you know that have a cocktail party or have a party with friends and are serving wine at dinner, you know, and they, these kids don't have an understanding about what's how one is okay. And the other is not okay. Um, and I would say that, you know, alcohol, you know, argue, arguably is, is a much more, you know, d- difficult thing to, to manage over, over the course of a lifetime in terms of, of, of chronic use and damage um, to body systems. That's not in any way me condoning, you know, kids using more weed than, than alcohol. But I, I do think that it's worth elevating your family conversation with facts. So... If a kid thinks they know everything, which most do, right? Like they know everything, they're invincible, nothing's going to happen to them, everything's going to be okay. What do you know? You're just a parent, you know? So we have to sort of absorb that response with a knowing internal wink and say, oh yeah, I remember being that invincible teenager as well. Um, Or that anxious teenager, whichever one, you know, resonates with you. And elevate that conversation to fact-based information. So if your kid is able to express to you that they're using, um, what form are they using in? Are they smoking? Are they e- eating edibles? Are they, what, what, what's the terminology that they're using? What lingo is they using? are they using? Are they vaping? Um, the, we have to be able to say that we don't know everything there is to know because that's the truth. We don't know everything there is to know as parents and as professionals. But what we do know is how to recognize when our kid looks like they're going off the deep end, right? When your child is making, um, you know, more errors in judgment than your average teenager, when a high-performing student stops high-performing, when they're becoming more and more isolated, when they're having difficulty coordinating themselves, when they're when when you see other signs of of um, difficulty, I think those are the things that are really more important to focus on. Um, it, rather than say, okay, let's blame the drug or let's blame the behavior. Um, in my practice and in the families that I've seen really successfully come come through the roughest times, it's because we've been able to get beneath the behavior. You know, what drives the behavior? What is the reason why your kid is attracted to doing this in the first place? What are your child's triggers? So that's the first layer I think is important to explore if you can get that conversation open. And, you know, sometimes getting the conversation open is the hardest part. 
right? right? And if that requires facilitation, of course, I believe in, you know, seeking intervention, finding a professional that can work with you or your family, work with your kid to sort of explore why there's an impediment to that communication, right? What is it that they don't trust you to say, you know, or what is there, what is it that they can't say to you because they don't totally trust that you'll have a response that, um, that validates where they're at, right? So we talk a lot about emotion coaching in my practice as opposed to, oh, you're okay, everything's fine. Or, um, you know, I, I just wanna make this point because I, I think it's one of my favorite tools is it, when I'm working with families is, yeah. um, well, there's two of them, but one of them is um, the power of learning how to reflect what you're, what you're seeing in your child. Right. Instead of reacting and telling and commanding, do this, do that, or here's the rule, here's my boundary, here's my expectation, to be able to really open up the conversation to what you're seeing in them. Like, oh, I'm noticing, I'm noticing that you're spending a lot of time alone. What's going on? You know, or or um, you know, weighing what's developmentally appropriate and being alone in your room and talking on the phone for hours at a time is developmentally appropriate. It looks like isolation, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes those kids or the ones that are on video games for hours and hours at a time, and you think, oh my God, they're in a deep, dark hole. Half the time they're on the, on the video game with another person socializing in a pandemic, the only way that we, they can socialize. They are biologically driven to, to do the social thing. They're also biologically driven to become autonomous to learn how to practice their own autonomy so as parents we have to be able to say oh okay i need to give them safe and appropriate ways to practice that autonomy so opening up the rules even if they feel risky to you to say all right well let's see how you can handle this level of responsibility and autonomy and saying you know being able to explore well how did that work out for you even if it if there was a mistake that happened being able to say okay well that was a mistake how can I help you be successful the next time we try and let you have this autonomy so so a lot of what we talk about with cannabis and 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 alcohol and other drugs that they may be experimenting with is um is less about the drug and the rule and more about the information and access and communication and the availability of the important relationships that exist in family members. Because one way or the other, either a kid's gonna go off the rails or they're not gonna go off the rails. The ones that, that go off the rails and were able to draw back are the ones that can rely on those strong relationships um, right. for, to support them. Yeah. And, and the other thing besides like the emotion coaching piece is the power of parent apology. (laughs) It's it's amazing how difficult it is for some parents to say, oh my God, I totally screwed up. And and I think that again, goes back to the lack of a good model, Um, you know, in, in a parent's life, you know, growing up, many of us were raised by, by parents who never apologized because they didn't think that parents should apologize, that parents should be, you know, authority at all times, but being able to be vulnerable with your kiddo as they're growing up and, you know, demonstrating that, you know, you too, as a parent acknowledge that you make mistakes and that, you know, sometimes you mess up and that sometimes you're not right. And sometimes you don't know, Mm -hmm. um, uh, is, is part of giving them that autonomy, you know, in themselves, giving them permission to be a whole human being. 
Um, Absolutely, Kara. I mean, it's, it's, this is the time in their lives where we have to be able to pass the torch to them mm -hmm. in some really meaningful ways. So it used to be when they were four or five or six, they would, you know, look to you for everything right? They, they wanted your advice. They wanted your attention. They wanted all the things that, you know, we, if we told them something, they would believe it, you know, um, often. And, and now in this, in this period, they're really trying to differentiate and individuate and separate. And all of that is, is really normal. And it's also very painful for parents to see okay. that moving away from that sort of role that they've had in the past. Mm -hmm. um, so the more we can get parents to accept that their kids need to practice that autonomy and that um, independence and that separation and that that's normal and healthy, the better the separation and individuation process goes and the more securely attached they become. So it's kind of counterintuitive um, what we see in practice. And, and I think um, just to kind of circle back to the whole what's underneath the use, right, factor, if we can, as parents, cultivate opportunities for our kids to um, engage in serotonin and dopamine, oxytocin and endorphin experiences, like enhancing experiences, neurochemical experiences that do the same exact thing, right. you know, as, as the psychopharmacological agents that are often used in, um, in, in psychoactive medications and psychoactive drugs. Right. Um, what are those things? And they could be super practical. And I, and I just have a list of them for you, if, yes. if that would be helpful. Please. So um, dopamine is sort of like a reward chemical, right? So um, even though there's plenty of drugs out there that, that open up these dopamine channels, um, completing a task, feeling accomplished, doing sort of, you know, self-care activities, having a bath, right? Um, eating, just eating regular healthy food, um, celebrating little wins, feeling like, you know, you can give a high five to yourself or to your friend, you know, those are all sort of rewarding activities. And they actually do have a biochemical, neurochemical impact on, on, on mood and behavior. Right. Oxytocin um, is what we call the love hormone, right? So, you know, teenagers love to be loved. They want to be connected to other teenagers, right? And it's so much of our, our history is like having them as our little kids and wanting to hug them and have them and hold them and snuggle them, you know? And a lot of times this is the time where they're not wanting that so much. And it's right. so hard as parents to say, oh, but I just want to give you that love. They can get that you know, in other ways with connecting with their friends, with playing with, you know, a dog or a cat or a baby, um, holding hands, um, hugging someone, you know, other than, you know, a parent or maybe even hugging a parent, um, giving compliments, you know, any sort of um, connectedness that they, that you can encourage. And, and, and I think that that's really important. It's really difficult for parents to kind of accept the transition from, being family centric to being social, socially centric, right. but that is, that is such an oxytocin focused activity for teenagers that, that, that feeds them and nourishes them in a way that minimizes their risk for overusing drugs. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's so, interesting too. Um, just sorry to, but yeah. the, 
you know, to kind of unpack that from the parent perspective, I know my husband and I, you know, we, we have one son and he is our, he is our only, you know, he's our, he's our sunshine. We revolve around him mm-hmm. and that is starting to shift with him being 15 and in high school. And, um, you know, the, the activities that you mentioned that, that normally would have brought dopamine or, you know, that dose of oxytocin that, you know, um, that bonding and, and loving kind of, you know, a release are not as available to us anymore. When, mm-hmm. he, when he was a little kid, we had chore charts and he would get a sticker and mm-hmm. a reward at the end of the week if he did his chores every day. Um, and, you know, the, the way that we connected, you know, hugging and, you know, holding hands and taking walks together and things like that, it's completely out the door, right? Right. Um, and, and yet at the same time, and I, and I re- recall from doing, um, some parent lessons when I was a middle school counselor um, on, you know, the ratio of um, positive reinforcement or, you know, rewarding kinds of, of language, like great job, or yes, you're doing a good job, or, you know, those kind of positive verbal reinforcements for kiddos um, when they enter middle school goes down by two thirds. Mm. And so for, for kids, it's a huge uh, relationship change when they become older, because more of the feedback that they get becomes more negative, mm. um, you know, more of, you know, I'm only going to remind you when you're not doing the thing right. that I want you to do rather than, and, and part of that is because we just don't see them as much. We're not as involved in their day-to-day academics or, you know, worlds. Um, and so what are some of the things that parents can do to, to boost those dopamine and, and oxytocin releasing, uh, Yeah. Well, I think, I think the, it's, it's not a matter of those things going out the window. I think it's just a matter of upgrading them or reframing them in, in a, in a new way. So, so, so think about, they're they're probably more aligned with the way that adults um, receive uh, feedback. So, so I think it's important to know what your quote unquote love language is, right? So if you know that um, your kid responds to physical touch, but they don't, they, they might as a teenager, not want it in the same way or as much as, or, or as unsolicited. Right. So if a kid has their door closed, right. You know, sort of respecting the fact that the door is closed, maybe when they were little, or you might've walked right in right now, it's time to sort of respect the fact that they are in this age and knock on the door. And, and if they say, don't come in or, or I'm not ready or what do you want, you know, just to be able to say, all right, I'll come back when you're ready, right? So, so be able to, to sort of acknowledge what they're asking for by interpreting that sort of nasty or abrasiveness, nastiness or abrasiveness that might come or that blocking doesn't necessarily mean that they don't want to be loved or physically touched. It's just that they're going to want it in a new way. So recognizing when they're receptive and when they might need a pat on the back or whether, or a hug or, or, or whatever, or, um, I think that's important. I think it's, uh, other things that, that, um, I think, if a kid knows that they want that sort of positive feedback, if they're, you know, having that conversation, like, does it help you when I notice that you're doing great things? Like, do you want me to recognize that? Or 
are they more interested in having you just be there, right? Be available for them. And again, that's, I'm hearing that, that opportunity for deeper connection with yeah. your kid as they are developing. So instead of just making an assumption, trying something out, getting frustrated and throwing your hands up in the air, it's an opportunity to ask them for their preference and then try to um, tailor your right you know, your, your reinforcement to, to their preferences. Right. And, and I wanted to just mention a couple of other, you know, neurochemicals, you know, so we talked about dopamine and oxytocin and there's serotonin, which is like the buzzword everywhere. And it's really just the mood stabilizer. So a lot of times teaching a, a kid meditating might look differently than an adult meditating. Right. So, so, um, for an adult sitting there and trying to practice breathing or mindfulness, you know, for, for a, a kid, it might be having a run or laying in the sun or swimming or cycling, you know, like biking or something where it's more of like a repetitive um, mantra, even if it's like a physical mantra where they're just kind of engaging in that sort of activity. Um, and just knowing that that is valuable time spent, right? Um, and endorphin is it, it, endorphins are what we classify as a painkiller, right? right? So um, laughing, mm -hmm. you know. So so what? It's another screen time activity. But if y'all like to watch the same show and laugh together, great, awesome. Yeah. You know, maybe it's more screen time. But if everyone's rolling on the floor because of a TikTok, yeah. fine. You know, that, you have to be able to, to, to see the trade-off in all of these activities. Um, so also like, you know, having dark chocolate, exercising, essential oils, you know, the more you can add these things into your environment, the more you're enhancing all of those neurochemicals and you're kind of being open to it as a family and really cultivating a stable base right. that minimizes the risk for them to seek those chemical bumps outside in that. ways that are dangerous. Yeah. Right. I love that. And thank you so much for going through that, Jody, because I, I truly don't, I, I don't know many parents who've not been through a psych, a psychology training program or a medical training program who understand the role of neurochemicals mm -hmm. uh, or how to produce those um, through natural, you know, activities in, in family life. So mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. I know, I know for parents and, and even for other mental health providers to be able to, you know, recognize what those activities, those neurochemical boosting activities are and yeah. recommending those is, is absolutely part of, of doing a better job, you know, meeting yeah. the whole person that you're working with and, and providing them with some opportunities to, to deepen connection and to, you know, really work on boosting those neurochemicals in, in natural family dynamic ways. Sure. And, and I think that it's, it really is, it's a relief, right? So yeah. in the same way that chronic cannabis users might feel a relief when they have that mind shift, yeah. right? When they're suddenly engaged with their peers or they can see the world in a different way, it's, it's the reframing piece and it's, it's actually just a relief from the stresses that right. they're experiencing. So um, I would call that self-medicating, right? So, mm -hmm. and to some degree, I think that we as adults need to recognize that, you know, for 
ages, people have been coming home from the office and kicking off their shoes and say, oh, I need a drink, right? And if that's what your kids are seeing on TV or that's what they're seeing in their family, they're saying, oh, okay, well, if I just have this cocktail or if I just smoke this joint, you know, I'm going to be able to just wash the day off of me and relax, right? The problem is when that habit becomes a problem and a behavioral issue that really um, mutates what the underlying stresses are. So the behavior becomes a chronic avoidance of the feelings that are difficult to manage and to tolerate that distress is a life skill. Mm -hmm. So we need to be able to, as parents, recognize the value of teaching how to tolerate distress without using substances, right? So you can go through all of those sort of hormone inducing, you know, neurochemical inducing behaviors that, that, um, that are part of wellness, right. And have coach your kids, how to have a wellness lifestyle, um, because it's neurochemically enhancing to them, but also it's the, um, it's the, the behavioral function of teaching them how to tolerate distress when things go wrong, because guess what? There will always be something that goes wrong. We will have there will be divorces, there will be pandemics, there will be broken legs, there will be loss, there will be breakups, they will, there will be missed packages and car accidents, there will be difficulties that, that come for the rest of their lives. So as a key feature of parenting, I would really say that teaching your kids how to tolerate distress is a critical factor because otherwise, what happens is that if they don't have those skills, they start to depend on the behaviors to avoid feeling that those distressing feelings. And then the behavior becomes the problem instead of the actual problem being the problem. Yeah, I, and I think too, um, when there is not that deep and um, trusting relationship with a parent at home, kids naturally turn, like you said, to social activities. And we know that one of the worst places kids can get facts is from another adolescent who probably doesn't know, um, you know, more than all the benefits and none of the, you know, consequences of Mm -hmm. of using marijuana either, you know, one time or chronically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so being able to, you know, have that fact-based conversation Mm-hmm. Really tuning in to the opportunities to connect in a, in a deeper way and providing um, your kids, you know, I'm just thinking of, you know, um, we, we used to be a lot more active prior to the pandemic. We used to, you know, come home and then want to spend time together. So we would take the dogs for a walk. Well, during the pandemic, you know, a lot of those behaviors changed and I'll bet that this is, you know, something that many of the listeners are reflecting on is, you know, how life has changed over the past year to, you know, not as interactive, not as out in the community, you mm-hmm. know, more homebound. Um, and certainly we all know that the, the drive towards substance abuse, I mean, alcohol use has gone up like crazy. And then right. with recreational use of marijuana being an option now, I'm, I'm certain that both, you know, adults and teens are turning to that more often than not to escape. Mm-hmm. So, but the, the good news is that with vaccinations on the horizon and, you know, the growing number of that, we can get our lives back. It's just going to be a matter of focusing on, okay, I don't like what we've become mm-hmm. and really taking strategic steps 
to start replacing some of the escapism and easy button, you know, it's serotonin hits from booze or TV or food or um, inactivity, you know, with some of those healthier behaviors. But I imagine it, you know, behavior change is hard and and we know that it takes time. We, we, we didn't get, you know, to where we are now overnight and we're not going to get back to a healthier place overnight either. Right. Yeah. Well, so I would say that, um, that, you know, some of the things that you, that you mentioned is, uh, you know, like when, how do you know when it's a problem or, or are you a parent that really fundamentally believes that any, any and all use is a problem. Right. And, and that, and even if you believe that, even if you believe that any and all use is a problem, having that mentality, when you talk to your kid, who's using is going to be like an automatic barrier right? There's going to, they're going to feel judgment. They're going to feel shame. They're going to feel accused. They're going to feel, um, you know, um, that, that you will never understand. Right. And, and you may, or you may not understand why they're doing the things that they're doing, but I would argue that the approach and that interaction between parents and, and, and kids is sort of the critical, the critical, um, barrier, right? The critical barrier is, is the way that you're speaking to each other um, constructive, right? Is the approach constructive? Are you getting, and say, for example, you've noticed um, your teenager has difficulty thinking or problem solving. Maybe you've noticed that they were high performing and now they've got problems with memory and they're not learning. If they've got some sort of impaired coordination or um, they're having difficulty you know, paying attention. Well, that could be all of those things could be an artifact of chronic cannabis use, but all of those things may also be reflecting um, an underlying mood disorder or like, you know, there's no one on the planet that's not affected by the pandemic right now. And, you know, we are not separated from our bodies, our minds and our bodies are integrally connected. So um, there is, it's a, it's, there's no easy way to say, okay, that's a chronic cannabis user. And that's the problem versus that's a kid who's really depressed and their behaviors are becoming the problem. And, you know, we need to address the behaviors because I just don't really believe you can address the behavior without addressing the underlying issue. Absolutely. Um, because even if you can get a kid to be abstinent for a week or a month or, or, or six months, you know, they still are operating in the same social system and the same family system that, that created the, that cultivated those, those, um, those attitudes and those moods to begin with. Um, and some of that could even be multi-generational, right? Like the way that your family has coped throughout the ages or, you know, sort of multi-generational artifacts of, of old trauma. You know, you have pa- families that are- I've worked, absolutely. I've worked with families, um, you know, who young families where I'm working with mom because, you know, moms are my special uh, specialty area right now. Um, and, you know, she's- concerned about her husband's alcohol use and her husband is not concerned at all about his alcohol use because in comparison to his first family family of origin you know father brothers uncles cousins um, he's actually using you know on the lower end compared to his family of origin mm-hmm. and they're all employed and they seem to be okay and so you know the same is absolutely true for for other family you know kinds of dynamics if it's not 
viewed as a problem, but it, it is a problem within the partnership or within the family system, um, something has to be done. Right. And, you know, um, again, if you're focusing just on the alcohol consumption of behavior, or in this case, you know, cannabis consumption, then you're missing the root cause. Right. That is that is causing the behavior to begin with. And if that's not addressed, you're going to come back again and again to that self-medication strategy. Absolutely. She was still there. Yeah, absolutely. And then I would say another um, sort of guiding principle for the way that I work with families and with, with any, any client of mine is targeting what the core values are in that individual. So some people don't even know what they are. Some people don't even show up knowing what their core values are. And it takes a few sessions to really explore what is it that you really believe in for yourself? What do you, what are your guiding principles in life? What do you want for yourself? Where are you going with your life and and what is important to you? Mm -hmm. And having um, a look at at that for teenagers is equally important, even more important because they're just launching themselves into adulthood. So a lot of times, a lot of the stress and confusion and frustration and mood relates to not knowing what they want, like not having a solidified idea of what their future is going to be and really not having a fully formed identity and clarity of the kind of adult they're going to, they're going to wind up being. So that sort of level of disorientation is, is also difficult to, um, to tolerate. So parents that have that sort of nuanced understanding of how it feels to be stuck in that kind of quagmire of indecision, um, are, are going to be more constructive with their teenagers as they develop that identity over time. Sure. So, um, so the idea is how much parents fear, like, what is, what is their fear? What are they, what, when they respond to their kid with yelling or a command or something that really stops the conversation or ends up in the same sort of patternistic power struggle, yes. right. That we see all the time with teenagers, you know, what is the power struggle about? And, and normally it, you know, what I more often than not hear is that parents say, well, I just want to make sure they're successful. I just want to make sure they don't ruin their potential. Or I just fear that they're going to end up like my, you know, like, like their uncle or whatever, you know, they're just worried about stuff. So the, and, and with all good reason, right. And, and sometimes the kids are the same way. They might be operating based and fear like, well, if I don't do that, they, so-and-so might, might not like me, or they'll think that I dress weird, or they'll think whatever they think, you know, it's all fear-based decisions that, that, that they're making. And then you get, you know, sort of entangled in this power struggle that's based on, on, on fear, fighting fear. Um, and really what I try to help people do is focus on, well, if you weren't so afraid of those things, mm-hmm. right. If, if fear, if you could take fear out of the equation and replace that fear with daily decision-making based on your core true values. And even if it feels scary or risky, or there's fear involved in activating around your choices, around your, your value values, driven choices, then you're living a meaningful life, right? You're making meaning, you're taking responsible risks because you're going in the direction of what you want 
Right. Right. Such an empowering way of, of looking, you know, at reframing a situation for, you know, a family because, you know, family members may not always a hundred percent agree on core values that there may be some differentiation, but the big values, people can usually agree on those. And if they can tune into, you know, moving away from fear-based decision-making, and if they can try to tune in a little bit deeper to, you know, let me, let me review my values. Mm -hmm. It's an easy decision. Yeah. Right. And then there's the families that feel like, oh my God, I poured so much energy into my, you know, uh, the raising of, of this child, you know, and then it's all for not like, it's all going out the window. They're going to throw it all away because they're going to, you know, get into a car wreck because they get behind the wheel after, after using, right. That's a legitimate fear. That's really, really potent. You know, parents are like scared to death that something horrible is going to happen to their kid. And, um, and I think that that guides the, the, the harshness of the communication, like, and the punishment conditional kind of language around what they can and do, can and cannot do as they're trying to release, you know, slack, put some slack in the tether and allow their, allow their kid to explore their autonomy. There's always going to be risk, right. always going to be risk. And, and as parents, we need to be able to tolerate our fear long enough to pivot to apply our values to the relationship, which, which I would encourage is the connection piece, right? Because right. that's the most protective piece. That's the one that's going to say, well, my family values and my connection to my family is so potent that I'm going to make this choice out there when I'm with my friends versus this choice when I'm out there with my friends. Um, and that's pretty sophisticated. Um, you know, so, so I think sometimes families have to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, you know, there was this trauma in our history, there was this divorce that happened, or there was this loss that was experienced, or there was this rupture in the relationship early on that we've never really repaired, right? So of course my kid is, as they're coming into their own independence is seeking some sort of relief, some sort of other way to do it. And so a lot of times the, the kids, um, you know, uh, drug use is related to rebellion. You know, like, I just, I just need to be away from them. I just need to do things differently than them. And I think that the more we can kind of open that up, um, the more we can bring things to the surface. It's not easy. Not that none of this is easy. No, but, but you bring up such a, an interesting point on an interesting week because um, Brene Brown, who I love, um, mm -hmm. she, you know, has released a, a podcast um, this week on, uh, in her Dare to Lead podcast on armored leadership versus... Mm -hmm basically, you know, heart-driven leadership. And, mm -hmm. and as you're talking about, you know, the idea of a, of a parent saying, this is a hard thing to acknowledge, but it happened. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it definitely is, is potentially the big difference between the parent who says, I'm just so worried, you know, all this investment I've made in my kiddo for them to just throw it out the window, that's armored leadership. So we're right. gonna shut it all down. And when that happens, you shut down creativity Mm. And, you know, the ability to have lots of voices at the table to solve this problem, which is mm -hmm. we have a kiddo who's disconnected. How do we reinvigorate this connection? And again, connecting to the heart, connecting to the value system that makes it, first of all, it engages the kiddo in the problem solving process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it also helps parents really reinforce 
family values that are important to them, despite the fact that difficult things are or have happened. Right. That need to yeah and and especially because their teenage brains are at this developmental stage of abstraction like they <clears throat> they're well beyond concrete thinking and they're really coming into their own sort of um, like emerging adult brain it offers an opportunity to have much more sophisticated conversations about things that couldn't happen before right you can have these higher level what i call process oriented conversations that are not just they're not content driven. They're about like, okay, well, when, what, what is it that I just said that upset you so much to help me understand the thing that I did that caused your reaction, right? So having, elevating the conversation to process oriented discussions once in a while, not all the time, because that can be really off-putting, right? But, but, but being able to have that space open to have them negotiate, like, okay, well, if you're really serious about that, mom or dad, you know, I really can't stand it when you, you know, barge into my room, or I really can't stand it when, you know, you tell me one thing and then you do another or whatever it is, you know, or you tell me, oh, I'll be right there. And then you're not there for a half an hour. Right. Right. So when they can have, when they have the courage to be able to, to talk to you as, as a parent, um, in that sort of transparent negotiative way, um, then a parent, if they're receptive and say, oh, okay, I see you. I see you as a person. You're not just my kid that I can control. I see you as a person evolving and being separate from me. And I respect that. And therefore, here's what I can do to adjust my behavior because I love you. Right. Right? Um, And then that earns a lot of respect from your kid. And then it kind of paves the way to having an adult relationship with your child, you know, down the road. Yeah. And, you know, I think we could probably talk all, all day about (laughs) this because there are so many things to unpack when it comes to, you know, a a topic like chronic cannabis use in teens is, Mm -hmm. you know, days and days of, of conversations. Um, But, but I really appreciate the perspective of here are some things you can do. You know, I, like I, like I mentioned, I spent a lot of time as a prevention, you know, Mm -hmm. person and in the world of prevention, I, um, my early career was focused with birth to birth to five population. So a lot of work with very, you know, new families, young parents, very mm-hmm. little kids um, talking about, you know, how to resolve some of those dysfunctional family dynamics and how to create some of those synergistic, okay, here are our values. And so here's how we're going to do problem solving in a creative, you know, way across the family. You know, it's, it's the brushing and flossing of family life together um, so that you don't get to a point where you suddenly have a kiddo who's using drugs, you know, mm-hmm. or, or alcohol in, in um, a really harmful, maladaptive way. Um, but at the same time, I really also truly appreciate the idea that I think for a lot of parents, they have no clue what to do if they suddenly learn that their kiddo has been using. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, they just learn this information or, you know, uh, a kiddo who is arrested, you know, at 17 years old for a DUI involving alcohol and marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a kid who normally is a straight A kid, right. um, you know, or, you know, any of those kinds of things, because the, the opportunity to connect, to get to, you know, the true heart of the matter and, you know, to look at the root cause 
is, is something that in our society, historically, we haven't done very well. We've been more litigious. We've been more punitive. We've mm -hmm. been more black and white um, with the way that we look at um, substance use. You know, yeah. it's been considered a a moral, you know, a weakness or a failure rather than, um, you know, self-medicating and right. choice, you know, um, to, to help engage those neurochemicals that, that we have not had access to. So yeah. I really appreciated, you know, the, the, the list of ways that families can, you know, really, um, provide opportunities for themselves and for kids. Yeah. Those natural boosting experiences and, and also, you know, the way to respond as a parent to, you know, learn the, the knowledge or, or learning that your kiddo has been engaging in, in chronic use. Yeah. And, and I think that you, you raise a good point about, um, you know, the, the tide changing in terms of punishment as a concept versus restoration, right? Like you hear a lot about restorative justice these days. And, and um, we've known in the mental health and behavioral health world for a long time, that there are seriously uh, problematic, it's, there's serious problems with punishment, right? It doesn't, it's great for like dog training, right? Or very little kids, right? But really, honestly, That's it's more complex than that. It's way more complex than that. And to really have long lasting change, you need to be able to reinforce positive behavior. So the more you're, you're reinforcing, you know, from a very behavioral perspective, reinforcing positive behaviors and learning to self-reinforce positive re, re, you know, behaviors. Like, you know, say you want to build a habit that's a healthy habit. You can do, you know, you know, do 10 push-ups every time you, you know, flush the toilet, you know, connected to something that you do all the time. And then look yeah. at yourself and the, the key is not that. The key is looking at yourself in the mirror and say, you did that. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. Pat yourself on the back because you're learning how to give yourself that reinforcement and say, I want, I want to do more of that because that was aligned with my values to, you know, build muscle, right. Or whatever the behavior is. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think that there's the idea of the concept of, of punishment and reward is, is really, um, evolving in, in society and culture. Um, you know, even looking at the way that prisons are handling, um, han handling, you know, incarceration, um, and repair, and I think that that easily parallels to how we parent and how we approach um, missteps in our in our in our kids. Do we want them to feel punished and um, and 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 isolated in that punishment and you know stew in how we feel that they've done something wrong, you know, or do we want them to learn something from the experience and grow from it? And and do we want them to feel as though we're there with them as they wade through that swampiness, as we, they wade through the, whatever difficulty they're experiencing, whether, you know, whether it's um, body image issues, relationship issues, academic issues, whatever teenagers are experiencing that, that, that we're there with them right. and that we expect them to make some mistakes because that's part of learning and that it's okay for them to, to feel whatever they're feeling and that we're, that it won't be forever. And right. that there's, you know, there's sunshine at the other end of that swamp and we can, we can walk, we can swim through that together. Yeah. Well, and, and that leads me back to, you know, the original thought of, of being a vulnerable whole human showing up as your whole self when you are a parent and, and, you know, I guess rejecting the idea that parents need to, you know, know all and, 
you know, be the authority 100% of the time um, for, you know, the more integrated identity of a parent as a whole human who mm-hmm. isn't perfect because no one is, makes mistakes because everyone does, mm-hmm. and has compassion for, you know, the process that they see in their child because they went through it themselves and they remember what it was like. Yeah. And what it is like as a human now as, as parents. I mean, we all have mistakes on, on a day-to-day basis. So being able to reflect that and share that part of your life with a kiddo. Yeah. Very preventative, but I think it's also um, important in the approach when, when something does go wrong, like when you find out your kids using. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it aligned and I think this is just what I I don't want to forget to say this before we, we wrap um, is that helping your kid crawl out of that problematic use situation that they might be in if you can get them to believe that you are on their side and there's transparency in that sort of recovery process is that we need to be able to acknowledge their growth and the progress that they're making at reducing their use Um, to expect like immediate abstinence maybe um maybe uh what's the word um it, it's, it may not be constructive to set the bar too high because when you set the bar too high and you say, okay, I expect complete and utter abstinence from you and I'm going to drug test you and this is the way we're going to do it and I'm going to lay, lay, lay down the line and if you don't do this, then you know, you're going to have all these things ripped away from you. You know, I mean, there is a time and a place for residential treatment. There's a time and a place for, for, for outsourcing the treatment to professionals. If you feel like you're over your head and you need that support, absolutely seek assistance for a higher level of care, but recognize that every step toward progress, every step toward a a lower and lower dependence on whatever it is that they're using is critically important for them to incorporate and scaffold that success, you know, say, okay, well, I did it today. Maybe I can do it tomorrow, you know, to be able to have that sort of self self-awareness that it's, it is a process. It's not like an on and off button. And um, the more uh, nuanced the understanding parents have, the more available they are to support their kids in a meaningful way. Yeah. Well, it's hard for all involved you know, mm-hmm. being, a, being a human and, and having, you know, just the, the human condition and, and being vulnerable is a hard thing for everybody. And so I think, you know, all, all of the, all of the information and tools that you shared are, are super helpful. So, yeah. and, and, and la- like, I keep thinking of, 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 a few things that are, that are left over in my mind. I don't want yeah. to, un- I cannot emphasize enough the power of, teens on other teens, right? We, we presume that it's mostly negative, but you know, it's really not all negative though. There's a lot of power in, in, um, teen positive influence and knowing that, you know, your teenager has reliable friendships and that they're cultivating, you know, friendships that they can trust, that they can be authentic in, um, in, um, in, in, in what they're sharing with their teenagers, if they're involved in teen groups, if they're in t- involved in team sports, if they have a core group of people. I mean, I think that's, the big, that's one of the biggest risk factors for, for um, drug use is, 
is isolation is having that disconnection to, to peer groups, you know? So, so being a good friend Mm -hmm. is also really important to having a good friend and being a good friend. And, And all we have to do is kind of look at the power of our either spousal relationships or friend relationships in the community. And you know that that's what's enriching to us as adults. So of course, that's what's enriching to your emerging adult as well. Right. And I think too, you know, you, you mentioned before having, having the refusal skills to be able to say, even in a good group of friends, if the friends decide that they're going to try or explore or experiment, to be able to give yourself permission to say no. And sometimes multiple times, you know, within that group of friends to be able to, you know, refuse and still feel good about yourself and, you know, potentially move on to a new group of friends. If that group of friends is, is headed in a direction that you don't feel good about, or that you, you just don't want to participate in. I know, you know, just in my own history, that was, that was tough, you know, in, in high school, having, um, you know, friends who wanted to try alcohol, um, or drugs and, you know, being able to refuse that and then feel like I have no one left. What am I going to do now? So I think even, you know, parents sharing those experiences and saying, you know, here's what I did. It did or didn't work. I think it's, it's a good thing to, to know that, you know, as a teenager, your, your parents went through some of what you went through and it may be different now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that with one caveat, right. It's like, there's differences in opinion on this topic, like from a, from a, a, a therapeutic perspective, like, should you tell your kids what you did when you were, when you were a teenager? Yeah. That uh, is mm-hmm. yeah and the answer is really, it, it highly depends, right. It's not like, it's not like it, um, telling them, you know, about the escapades that you experienced is going to necessarily connect you or empower you to, um, to say, okay, well, I did this and it was really a bad situation. And I wish I didn't. And had I not done this, I would have done this just by saying that you did it it is in some way condoning that it's normal teenage behavior. Right. So I think it's really important to be mindful of what you share with your kids about your previous history with drugs and alcohol, um, or being curious about why they're asking, like, like, tell me, tell me what, you know, what you're, what do you, um, why is it important to, to know that, you know, like help me understand what you're struggling with, you know, but to really take every opportunity to really get behind the reason for what their questions are about your own history. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and also not to come off as, um, as dated, right? Like, oh yeah, well that was then. And this is now, things are different now. Right. And, and I would say that there is a subset of kids that are in a lot of trouble. They're in over their heads because they're experience, experimenting with larger and larger amounts of cannabis. And there's, you know, milligram labels, right? Like back when we were younger, there was, we didn't talk in those ways, right? Like there was no such thing. Um, and, um, I think that if you know of a kid or if your kid is, um, discovered to be experimenting with larger and larger quantities or larger and larger milligrams of, of, of THC, that there is a much higher risk of dissociation of psychosis of, of like losing touch with reality, you know, in hyperemesis there, there are all sorts of, you know, 
physiological problems that go along with overdosing on, on cannabis that I don't think that peers are expressing to peers, right? It's all about being like, oh, I can handle that because I'm, you know, I'm a super pro at this, right? And that's when, that's when we see tragic things happen with kids. Sure. So, you know, so what there is a time and there is a place to say, okay, I've discovered something that's far beyond recreational use. And, And again, I'm not condoning the recreational use. I'm just saying that at some point, if you realize that your kid is one of those kids that wants to kind of push the limits and and explore the realms of, you know, reality in that way, you know, um, what are they really seeking? What are they really needing? What are they really trying to explore? You know, is it, is, are they that bored or are they that interested in, 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 you know, um, in, in the mind in a way that they're not able to access in another way? What are they reading? You know, who are their friends? What are their friends' parents, you know, doing or saying about it? You know, I think knowing your community, knowing your kids' friends, knowing your kids' friends' parents, you know, is also another thing that parents can do to sort of open their minds to, to, with curiosity about what their kids are exposed to out there. Sure. And there, there's so much to unpack, even in just what you just said, Jody. you know, right. So, so often parents don't have an opportunity to really know other parents. Um, and, you know, I, I, I know lots of parents who've said, you know, now that my, my child is in middle school or high school, they don't want parents around. And, you know, it is both awkward and uncomfortable, you know, to try to learn a little bit more about the families that, you know, my, my child's been invited to, you know, come to their house for the weekend, but I, I don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. But how do I get to know them, you know, before I say yes or no to allowing my kiddo. And then once my child is driving um, and they have access to the car, you know, how do I set some limits there? So definitely lots more we could, we could unpack there. Right. We'll have to save that for our next podcast together. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much again, Jody, for your time today. I really appreciate it. And um, I'll provide the, the contact details for getting in touch with you if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Right who may have additional questions or, um, you know, want to seek some resources, I'll provide uh, links to some information that, um, that Jody and I feel are, are good for, you know, parents and, and for mental health professionals and, and for people in general. So great. Thank you, Kara. Yeah. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And, and thanks to everybody who joined us today. All right. Talk to you next time. Bye.